humanity in healthcare is is seeing and being seen and hearing and being heard and healing and being healed. More human healthcare means I know what matters to my patients, not just what's the matter with them. And more human healthcare means extending kindness, compassion and fair treatment regardless of my faith, nationality and race. Remembering that underneath it all, we're all human. More human healthcare means remembering everyone involved is human. As staff, it would mean the umbrella of safety and compassion is extended to me. As a patient, it would mean not to be unfavorably cared for because of who I am. Humanized healthcare for me is more than just dressing my wounds. It's holding my hands, looking into my eyes, asking how I feel, just checking that I'm not scared, treating me like a human being. Welcome to the Humanising Health podcast series from the Point of Care Foundation. And today's episode asks the question, what does humanised care mean in the neonatal intensive care unit where the environment is anything but human? I'm Beth Fitzsimons and I'm the Chief Executive of the Point of Care Foundation. And today I'd like to welcome Howard Cohen and Sean Sweeney. Howard and Sean are neonatologists who care for babies and families in the neonatal intensive care unit at Randall Children's Hospital in Portland, Oregon. And through the Vermont Oxford network of neonatal units in the US, Howard and Sean have been working with the Point of Care Foundation for some time to introduce a technique called experience-based co-design to the neonatal unit. And this is a technique that seeks to form stronger bonds and relationships between professional carers and family members in bringing about improvements in the NICU. So you're both very welcome, and uh, it's really good to see you today. So as you know, the the Point of Care Foundation's mission is to humanise healthcare. So could I just start off by asking you about this term, humanising healthcare, and what it means to you? Well, I mean, I think for me, it means uh, that we really take the family as a unit into consideration, and how the care that we deliver affects them, not just in a physical sense, but in an emotional sense, uh, a psychological sense that uh, we want to be caring for them as an entire person and and not just fixing the physical problems, which is really a lot of what the nuts and bolts of what we do are. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good description of what I would also agree with to see. There's a baby in the incubator. go into the room and there's a family sitting there and um, it's more than just the clinical care is really having a relationship with all of the all of them in the past sean you've mentioned that sometimes it's been about there's always been an intention to involve families in the care of babies but has the co-design process changed that yeah i think it changed it a lot for me and it's interesting just that i didn't think of it before i think but you know we historically would figure out what we wanted to do, figure out what the change ideas were, and then figure out a plan of what we were going to do. And then kind of at the end, we would bring it to our family and advisory council or our families and say, here's what we want to do. What do you think about it? And the difference with this is instead of letting our 
general medical rules uh, or what we think needs to happen from a medical standpoint direct what choices we make. Uh, we took the time to sit and listen to families' experiences and, and let those experiences guide us in where, where were we actually experiencing the biggest problems with the way that we support our families and how they feel in the NICU, and also what aspects of our care could be improved to involve them uh, more. Um, so they they sort of drive the, the change ideas versus being a committee that says that's a good idea or not. So. You, Howard, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think it really gives us an opportunity to kind of um, sit down and hear what the families are experiencing, take the time to kind of listen to their stories and um, really kind of helps remind us um, why we are doing what we're doing and that we need to kind of just recognize that what we're doing, they're experiencing it and those experiences are important. And there are things we can do to kind of make their experiences better um, and perhaps a little different than what we think they are. As, as doctors, what's it like to listen to those family stories? I mean, it's it's pretty powerful. Like, I think doing the interviews is pretty amazing. I really wanted the team to just listen to the family. So for those interviews, I was like, just get them started talking and let them tell you their story. And, and almost all the families just would, you know, go from one part of their experience to another with very few questions that you had to ask. And it's amazing the things that affect families. And I mean, I, I noticed this early on in neonatology, like before this process, even like listening to a family talk about the fact that their baby's first bath was done by the nurses and the nurses did it well-intentioned, but how that, you know, still affected them 10 years later that they missed that experience. And so sometimes things that we think we're doing that are helping families really have uh, more of a negative impact on them. And without listening to them, we don't hear it. It's also a little bit hard to hear the failures that you have, the things that you thought you were doing well, but clearly you weren't. And to be like, you know, I, we're supposed to be doing that, but but we're not we're not hitting hitting the mark here yet. And we also um, get to hear about things we do right. So yeah. <laughs> it's rewarding in that way, and uh, we get to hear some things that can be quite surprising. Things that we don't necessarily think about as being important become really important. I'll tell you one little story, which is that we had a baby in my um, NICU back in Illinois, and grandfather was there, and he had a pack of cigarettes in his shirt pocket, and um, his uh, daughter, the baby's mother, was a pediatric intensive care unit nurse, and so she worked at the hospital. And I told that granddad just in passing, I said, you know, they're not going to let you keep seeing the baby unless you stop smoking. Just kind of pretty casual. And like about, uh, I ran into the nurse about five years later, and she wanted to thank me because when I, after I said that to her dad, he actually stopped smoking and never smoked again. And I thought, well, that's really amazing. Something that I just kind of almost casually said had such a powerful impact uh, on that family in a very nice way. That's a nice story. I think you've both spoken about part of humanizing being having stronger relationships with families. And I wondered what gets in the way of that. Why is that hard to do? Well, I think one thing is we're busy. 
a lot of our day is kind of seeing a, a, a fair number of babies, uh, other things that come up. So on, just on a, any given day, there can be things that get in the way of that. Oftentimes the families aren't there when we're there seeing the babies. And so sometimes we can't even reach them on the phone. We have to leave them a voicemail. And then I think the other thing is just a fragmentation of how we do our care from day to day. So there are changes in the care providers um, that are relatively frequent. And I think that also gets in the way of the individual relationship that, a, that any, any one of us can have with a family. I think this is where some aspects of our healthcare social system get in our way too. In the U.S., just we don't really support long-term leave for parents when they have a baby. And so a lot of them have to go back to work. We have families that have five of their kids and they can't be in the NICU. And, you know, a lot of the connections you make are in those times that you can just kind of sit down and talk to a family and the, let the conversation be what it is, which is oftentimes not talking about the baby or just talking about life or other things. And, uh, but as much as we would like to have families be there more, uh, sometimes, you know, society doesn't really allow for that. And other times families provide their own barriers that don't get me wrong. I'm not saying every family would be there as much as they could if they could, but having that ability to just sit and talk to somebody is huge. And it is a really rewarding part of the job to make those connections with families. Looking after very sick neonates is a very tough job. So how do you manage the the demands on your own well-being? I mean, there must be a real emotional labor involved when you are fully present with families, potentially at the most difficult times of their lives. Yeah, I know there's a there's definitely an emotional toll as to manage it completely right. I, I probably don't do it that way. <laughs> I'm not sure any of us do. The balance of work and life and our job is is difficult at times. But I I think we owe it to our families when their babies are really sick and or dying to be there with them, to share their experience with them. I mean, I personally let my emotions be what they are. I don't try to hold them back. I mean, try to hold them back enough that I can talk because sometimes you get choked up and you can't finish your sentence. But, um, you know, sometimes I cry with families and, you know, I, I've found that it's best to let myself feel how I feel then it doesn't stay with me in kind of a negative way. I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't think about what happened or the families after that, but more just acknowledging the emotions that I have and, and uh, accepting them. So, Yeah, I would agree with that. And it helps to, again, the, if you have a more ongoing relationship with that family, as opposed to just kind of being there when things are really bad and not really knowing them beforehand, I think that, again, the relationship can really help that. And the other thing, I think a um, couple other things, one is sometimes going to the funeral services afterwards, seeing the family a little later or can also kind of help help me personally, kind of just kind of with my own feelings about what how things went and what happened. Must be incredibly rewarding as well at times when I think when we talked before, you talked about what you give to families, but also what you gain from them. And, and the celebrations. I wonder if you might just touch on that. Yeah, I think we could celebrate things more than we do. <laughs> the mm -hmm. adage, you know, two positives for every negative, right? I mean, I think 
a lot of things in the NICU are negative. Um, a lot of things we have to discuss are negative. I mean, fortunately, babies are pretty tough and resilient and, you know, most of them make it through whatever they have to go through. But, but there are, you know, I, I try to point out like, hey, this is a little milestone or a victory, but I, I think we do have some opportunity to, you know, celebrate stuff more, especially when families leave. There isn't much fanfare and, you know, some families are there for over a hundred days and it's a big deal to them. I mean, even for families that are just there for a week, like, you know, the experience is so traumatic and they're getting out of there. Like, and it's kind of like, well, bye. And they just walk out and some families have said that that just didn't feel right. Like it felt like there should be more of an acknowledgement that, Hey, this is good. We're going home. It's a victory. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, we do some things to dress up the room that they're in, um, particularly if they've been there for a while. I think that really helps. I agree with Sean. We could do even more, I think, to celebrate around the times babies go home. Uh, it depends, again, who's there when the baby goes home. It may not be the same person who's been involved in the majority of their care. So the other thing I think we all NICUs do, and we certainly do at Randall, is uh, have a reunion. Families come back with their older their children who are now older, and uh, it's really a nice way to kind of see the family again and grow up. And they are always are very thankful for all that care that's been provided. So I think that's really also a nice way to kind of re re-energize and recognize how much we mean to the families um, and how often things go really well. Yeah, I think there's a terrible tendency for us to focus on the negative sometimes, don't we? When there's <coughs> there's such a lot to celebrate. If you had a magic wand and you could change a couple of things, what would you say would make a big difference both to families in the NICU and for the staff working in the NICU where this is such a tough environment? What what could you do to make the experience more human? Well, we could um, get rid of our virus. Currently, that would help. Um, I mean, I... I, I I think we we try to do this and and I I think at the foundation trying to figure out how to have families be able to be more present in the NICU and giving them more to do which we've been working on for years through the family integrated care process but just trying to recognize that hey there's a lot of things that we do with the babies that we could teach parents to do and that I think gives them a sense of at least when they're there, they they have something to do. They're not just sitting on in a chair looking at an incubator. I mean, more societal things of how do we give families the ability to be there more. The things that I think people don't realize is how much the families mean to those babies and their outcomes. I mean, their presence doing skin-to-skin care, even just interacting with the baby, all those things have positive effects on their brain and development. And you can't get that back, you know, from a public health standpoint, it would be good to be able to figure out a way to do this, always finding the will or resources to do it. But families are so important to babies doing better. You know, some of the political societal barriers are much harder to wrestle with. You know, <laughs> Yeah, I would agree. If we could have a family leave that lasted a year, that the families could use as they want, like some other countries do. I think in this country, that would be a big thing. It would be a big, wonderful change that would really let them be there more. Once we get past the virus, um, I think being able to have other family members be there more 
to kind of celebrate the fact that they have a new sibling or a new grandchild. They don't have to wait four months for that child to come home to start to see everybody else in the family. I think all those things would really help. And they would also make it better for the staff, nursing staff. In all of the kind of studies of family integrated care or families as partners, it really helps the staff to kind of have those relationships with families in a different way. Yeah, I think we're pretty lucky in the UK with our maternity leave and parental leave. I think those of us who've benefited from that feel very fortunate to have had that opportunity. So are the grounds for optimism? Is anyone getting this right? Was there any indication that we're headed in the right the right direction? I, well, yeah. I mean, I I would say that in my career in neonatology is much shorter than Howard's in the grand scheme of things, but I've seen a lot of change and a lot of positive change throughout not just the units that I work in, which we've actively been working on, but just as a whole, like the recognition of how important families are and what we and trying to do more and more with trying to understand what we need to do to help them. I, that's been going on. People have been embracing newer ideas like the you know experience-based co-design and trying trying them out, like saying, well, let's do this. This looks like this is the direction that we want to head. And, and so I think gradually, but definitely in a positive way, neonatology has been moving to be in a better and better place. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think we not just we are not only recognizing the importance of families, but we're actually implementing changes in our units that kind of are based on the recognition, based on the evidence that really is a benefit. It's a benefit for the baby clinically. It's a benefit for families emotionally and in terms of their abilities to care for their child, to know their child more. Um, and I think we're seeing changes in NICUs. There's certainly variation like there is in our clinical care, but I think most NICUs are moving in the right direction, um, some quicker than others. That's the way it works in, in change and quality improvement. Um, but I think we're all kind of moving in the right direction. We still have opportunities we don't really understand around equity and um, recognizing the health outcomes are different in different racial groups and different ethnic groups and kind of starting to incorporate that into what we're doing, what we implement. I think those, those are coming along. I think in our world, Vermont-Oxford Network kind of has been helping as a catalyst for those changes. Um, I think Sean and I are fortunate to kind of be actively involved in that work. It's also a leadership in our own organization at the administrative level that provides the funding for this work and recognizes it's important so that nursing has the time to kind of be involved and the other disciplines are involved. So I think we're slowly but surely kind of making our way in a good way. Well, it's, it's certainly been a fantastic experience for us to partner with you in this work over the last few years. So long may it continue. Um, yes, I agreed with that completely. <laughs> Sean and Howard, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. And let's hope that the co-design work that you've been engaged in in Oregon continues to spread across the Vermont-Oxford network and builds ever stronger relationships with the professionals and the families in the NICU. Thank you so much for giving up your time to talk to me today. Uh, thanks for having us. Thanks, 
If you want to find out more about the Point of Care Foundation and our mission to humanise healthcare, you can visit us at pointofcarefoundation, all one word, .org.uk or follow at Point of Care Foundation on Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Point of Care Foundation uh, Humanising Health podcast. I hope you like what you heard and we'll look out for our next episode on humanising healthcare next time from the perspective of people with long-term conditions when I'll be joined by Sherelle Augustine and Nordia Willis who live with sickle cell disease and Sandra J. Cody who has lived experience of mental ill health and they'll be discussing what a more human system looks like for them. Until then, this is me, Beth Fitzsimon, saying goodbye. Goodbye.